Welcome back to Andy's Book Club. If you're new here, welcome. This is the show where we go over an exciting book chapter by chapter on a weekly schedule. Every week, I provide a recap of the chapter we're covering, and I add my commentary as we go along. If something requires more explanation, I might reserve some time at the end of the show and discuss it in more detail. So, whether you're studying for a test, writing an essay, or if you're like me, you're just super passionate about reading, this show is perfect for you. As a reminder, this show is available on YouTube, Spotify, and a whole bunch of other platforms. And if you're watching this on YouTube, the links for all those other platforms are down below in the description. Or you can just search for Andy's Book Club directly on your favorite platform, and it should be one of the top results. Wherever you might be listening from, though, if you like the show, be sure to follow and subscribe. This show also has a Twitter page, so if I need to post visuals, I will do so on twitter.com/andy'sbookclub. So be sure to follow me there. Anyways, without further ado, let's jump in. You will recall last week that we left on a high note for Aegon the Conqueror. He had finally almost achieved his dream of uniting the entire continent of Westeros, save only for Dorne, who still resisted his grasp. So, although Aegon had been anointed by the High Septon of Old Town, who's the spiritual leader of the Faith of the Seven, the religion of the majority in Westeros, it was difficult for Aegon to just stop and be satisfied. I think Aegon is incredibly like some characters from our history in real life, where George Martin no doubt drew some inspiration from.、Uh, namely, I think of famous figures like Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, Julius Caesar, where even after their great victories, they never knew when to stop. And it's this lack of ability to stop that would come back to bite them hard, and Aegon would be no exception. Uh, but anyways, before Aegon had time to settle down and think about what to do for Dorne, there are a few more issues that needed to be handled even before that. In an area north of the Vale of Arryn called the Bight, there were this small group of islands called the Three Sisters. House Sunderland ruled the Three Sisters and had taken advantage of the chaos of Aegon's conquest and taken the opportunity to declare their independence under Queen Marla Sunderland. The area of the Three Sisters was under the jurisdiction of House Arryn. However, the Arryn fleet had been mostly destroyed over the past few years of fighting. So Aegon ordered Torn Stark, the king who knelt, and the new Warden of the North, to deal with the rebellious islands. Upon seeing the arrival of the Stark fleet and Queen Visenya on top of her dragon Vagar, the rebels soon lost their will to fight and deposed Queen Marla and surrendered. Now, former queen Marla was imprisoned for five years and then had her tongue cut out and forced to join the Silent Sisters. The Silent Sisters are this group of women who specializes in ceremonies involving preparing the dead for funerals, and this practice of having women join the group is often used as punishment since the Silent Sisters must swear chastity and to stay completely silent for their entire lives. So, to us, this might be seen as a cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, but this is actually considered a light punishment by Westerosi standards.、Uh, so usually, if a person rebels against their king, regardless of their man or woman, the punishment is death, and not a pretty one at that. So the fact that Marla was allowed to live even after rebelling against Aegon is actually a demonstration of Aegon's dislike for unnecessary violence and bloodshed. In other words, minor spoiler: there will be much worse kings than Aegon in the future. But with the three sisters pacified, meanwhile in the Iron Islands, recall that the house of King Heron the Black, House Hore, 
had all perished at Harrenhal when Heron foolishly decided to go against Aegon instead of bending the knee. Also recall that Heron was from the Iron Islands, meaning that although the Riverlands had a new house in charge, House Tully, the Iron Islands were left with a huge power vacuum after Heron's death without any clear successors. And to further complicate the matter, the Iron Islands were another exception when it came to religion. They did not follow the old gods like the Starks, nor the Faith of the Seven like everyone else. Their god was called the Drown God, and it's their own version of the God of the Sea. Uh, so kind of like Poseidon, uh, if you want to think about it that way in our mythology. So because of the differences between the Ironborn and the rest of Westeros, the Ironborn had a much stronger sense of independence to begin with. Uh, through the mess and the power struggle after Heron's death, a person named Corin Volmark of Harclaw emerged as the new ruler. However, his leadership was not unchallenged, and some followed the leadership of Lodos, a holy man of the faith of the drowned god. There were also numerous other claimants to the throne of the Iron Islands, called the Driftwood Throne, uh, and these factions battled against each other endlessly. Aegon sought to put an end to the fighting himself when he flew to the Iron Islands on the back of his dragon Balerion in 2 AC. Aegon defeated Corrin Volmark in a battle by cutting him down with his Valerian steel sword, Blackfire. Lodos, the holy man, called upon the Krakens of the sea to rise up and help him defeat Aegon. When nothing happened, Lodos filled his clothes with stones and walked into the sea along with thousands of his followers. For context, the faith of the drowned god is very connected to the sea. When an ironborn is conducted into the faith, a priest ritualistically drowns them and resuscitates them back to life. Lodos probably legitimately thought that the drowned god would save him, or maybe he did intend to commit suicide along with his followers to join the drowned god in his watery halls. Either way, Aegon defeated the rebelling Ironborn and allowed the Ironborn to choose a new leader, so long as that new leader swore fealty to House Targaryen. The Ironborn chose Vicon Greyjoy, the Lord Reaper of the island of Pike, as their new leader. In addition to swearing fealty to House Targaryen, Greyjoy was required to renounce all claims on the Riverlands formerly held by King Heron the Black and further accept House Tully of the Riverlands as their liege lord. A liege lord is a lord that's higher than you, so the king gives power to the great houses, and those are the wardens, and those houses are in turn liege lords to lesser houses. Meaning that House Greyjoy had to agree to be a step lower than House Tully of the Riverlands, and in the Game of Thrones main sequence story of A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, you'll see how this dynamic causes issues. Since, as we said, the Riverlands and the Iron Islands have bad blood between each other, since uh, the Ironborn definitely don't like to be considered a step lower than the Riverlords. Uh, but anyways, for now, Aegon had successfully dealt with the rebellious factions. Uh, but again, except for Dorne. Recall how we discussed last week the trouble that Queen Rhaenys had in Dorne, uh, where the Dornish would disappear into the desert whenever a battle was looming, and then come out of nowhere and do hit-and-run tactics. The Dornish were also famous for using poisons which they used to poison sources of water to attack the logistics of the incoming Targaryen army, and these tactics had proven to be extremely effective. 
Aegon, for what it's worth, had tried his hand at diplomacy with Princess Maria Martel, the Yellow Toad of Dorne. He tried for a better part of a year to negotiate a merger between his kingdom and Dorne, but Maria would not budge. The words of House Martel rang strong. House Martel was unbowed, unbent, and unbroken. House Martel did not bow to anyone, cannot be bent to anyone's will, and will not be broken in the battlefield. Aegon was forced to try his hand at breaking House Martel with the start of the First Dornish War in 4 AC. Aegon and his half-brother Oris Baratheon marched into Dorne with over 30,000 men, while Rhaenys, on top of her dragon Meraxes, burned the countryside. Recall that Rhaenys had once briefly occupied the Dornish capital of Sunspear, only to find it empty except for the Yellow Toad herself, Maria Martell. Maria was as stubborn then as she was now and showed no signs of fear of Rhaenys, or her siblings, or her dragon. Rhaenys has sworn to Maria that if she did not bend the knee, there will be hell to pay for Dorne. And, true to her words, Rhaenys was now mad with anger. The Dornish knew that they could not fare well on a head-on battle with the Targaryen army, so they strategically retreated whenever possible and allowed the supply lines of the Targaryen army to overstretch and for the Targaryen soldiers to cook underneath an unforgiving Dornish sun. Despite this though, Aegon managed to make grinding progress and eventually capture Sunspear once more from the Dornish. After capturing Sunspear, Aegon declared victory, named his own officials in charge of the city and occupied regions, and flew back to King's Landing. However, just shortly after Aegon departed, the Dornish army popped out of seemingly nowhere and overthrew the government that Aegon had put in place and executed all of Aegon's officials that he left behind. The only foothold that the Targaryens had left in Dorne was a city called Hellholt that was still held by Lord Tyrell, who invaded Dorne with Aegon initially and left in charge of the place by Aegon. By 6 AC, so two years later, the war would devolve into a bloody mess, with numerous atrocities committed by both sides. The entire attention of the Targaryen family, and by extension of Westeros, was fully wrapped up in the war in Dorne now. And again, neither side had made significant progress, and the end of the war was nowhere in sight. Under these circumstances, something big had to change, and by 10 AC, something truly huge would happen. Uh, so you see, dragon scales were incredibly tough and able to resist all sorts of arrows and spears and all sorts of projectile weapons that you can throw at it. But the Dornish had developed this weapon called the Scorpion. It's kind of like a giant crossbow. And it's kind of like a Roman ballista if you've ever seen a picture of one of those. Uh, so while Queen Rhaenys was fighting the Dornish on top of her dragon Meraxes at Hellholt, a bolt fired from a scorpion struck Meraxes in the right eye. This did not cause Meraxes to die immediately, but Meraxes fell out of the sky with Rhaenys still on her back. What happened next is a point of debate among the maesters of Westeros who compile and examine the historical records. We know that Meraxes succumbed to the arrow in the eye after hitting the ground, uh, but it was unclear how Rhaenys perished. Some say she was crushed to death by her dragon because it landed on top of her. Some say she survived the initial fall but was captured by the Dornish and then tortured to death later. Whatever the case though, we can confirm that both Rhaenys and her dragon died as a result of this battle at Hellholt. To Aegon, this was a tragedy of epic proportions. Even though it was clear to most that he loved both of his wives, 
It was said that for every night he spent with Vazenya, he spent ten nights with Rainies. Maybe it's a bit of a taboo to say that he loved Rainies more than he did Vazenya, and of course Aegon would never admit it. But it's not crazy to imagine that that was indeed the case. The loss of the love of his life would spell further bloodshed to come for Dorne in a period called the Dragon's Wrath. In the following two years, every castle in Dorne was burned down at least three times. The two factions were now also resorting to blatant assassinations on lords and government officials. Uh, there were three assassination attempts on Aegon himself, with two of them almost succeeding. There was an assassination attempt on Queen Visenya as well, but she's a badass with her Valerian steel sword, Dark Sister. And normal people would just get dismembered limb from limb if you try to go at her, so it did not succeed. Still, even the dragon's wrath did not deter Princess Maria, and she would not surrender. By 13 AC, old age had finally done what Aegon couldn't, and Maria passed away and was succeeded by her son Nymor Martell. By this point, Nymor was an old man himself in his 60s, and he did not have the same iron will to keep fighting as his mother did. Nymor sought an end to the war, and it was his first act as monarch of Dorne to send a delegation to King's Landing, led by his own daughter, Daria, and propose a peace between the two sides. When Daria arrived at King's Landing, opposition to peace with Dorne was fierce among Aegon's court. One of the most vocal opponents to peace was Queen Visenya, who stated bluntly, no peace without submission. Orius wanted to send Daria back to Dorne, less a hand. Some lords suggested that they just arrest Daria right away and sell her to the brothels. Aegon, to his credit, soundly rejected all these suggestions, vowing that he would not harm an envoy, even an envoy from a sworn enemy. We once again see the quality of leadership set by King Aegon the Conqueror. Recall that when King Arglac of the Stormlands had felt insulted by the marriage proposal made by Aegon on behalf of his brother Oris to Arglac's daughter, that was enough for Arglac to cut off the hands of the envoy that Aegon had sent. Now we're seeing Aegon who is staring at someone who is related to the people that are involved with the killing of his beloved wife, and he still decides to do the rational thing instead of acting out in a rage like a lot of other people would in his position. Uh, but on that note though, this is not to say that Aegon was about to accept the peace agreement that Daria brought forth. Accepting peace without submission would make him look bad in front of the lords and the people of the Reach who sacrificed the most troops in this campaign so far. It could also prompt more rebellion since it would demonstrate that people can go against Aegon and not be destroyed. Aegon was about to reject the peace offer until Daria offered him a letter and said it was for King Aegon's eyes only. Aegon took the letter and he read it in court silently. After reading the letter, he stayed silent and burned the letter, ordering people around him to never speak of it again. That same night, he mounted Balerion and flew to Dragonstone. When he came back from Dragonstone the next morning, Aegon accepted the peace offer presented by Daria on behalf of Prince Nymor. It is not clear what exactly was said in the letter, and many have proposed theories. Some say that it was simply just the heartfelt letter detailing the bloodshed that has happened and justifying why the war needed to end. Some say that the Dornish imbued the letter with some sort of dark magic to enchant Aegon and manipulate him into agreeing. 
Some say that the Dornish threatened to hire the Faceless Men, which is this famous group of assassins from the free city of Bravos, uh, to kill Aenys Targaryen, who's the son of Aegon and Rhaenys, who was just six years old at the time. Uh, so not only was Aenys the heir to the throne, he was Aegon's only son with Rhaenys. Whatever the case is, though, we'll never know for sure. Uh, but what we do know is that this will be the end of the first Dornish War, which officially lasted from 4 AC to 13 AC. And unfortunately, as the name implies, there would be a second Dornish War. A lot of bad blood had been created between Dorne and the rest of Westeros. However, conquering Dorne would be a task left for future kings, because by now, Aegon had experienced the consequences of going too far. Although he avoided catastrophe for himself, the war in Dorne had cost him the life of his beloved Rhaenys and dealt an incredibly hard blow to him mentally. Aegon was done with wars. There will be no more wars for his remainder of his reign as king. Okay, so before I end the episode today, I think this is one of the occasions that we could spend some time circling back and talking about something in more detail in today's episode. Uh, namely, what was in that letter that Daria gave to Aegon. Uh, so all the explanations... Uh, given by the maesters, they basically all suck, okay? So uh, the one about hiring a faceless man to kill Aegon's son Aenys, that's totally not going to work. Uh, if you think Aegon would be afraid of that, you're smoking something, right? Because if you think that if you're going to threaten a man who's already pissed because you killed his wife, what makes you think that is going to scare him? Like, that's just going to make it worse, right? So um, the part about the dark magic being imbued in the letter, that doesn't really make sense either. Like, I know the rules of magic are kind of up in the air, but it, it just doesn't make sense, right? They're all kind of lame. Here's what I think happened, okay? So uh, I think it was Rainey's who wrote the letter. As in, Rainey survived the fall, got captured by the Dornish, and then she realized that her injuries were going to be fatal. So she wrote a letter to Aegon with her dying energy, uh, and telling him that the war should stop. This makes sense considering that there were rumors that she survived the initial fall already and was captured, and I believe that that's exactly what happened. Uh, so the part about the Dornish torturing her was probably made up to tarnish the reputation of the Dornish, because uh, the Westerosi, by that point, they've been fighting the Dornish for so long and they all hated each other, so... You know, they probably made that part up just to make the Dornish look bad. Um, but I don't think that they tortured her. So my theory is that the Dornish actually treated Rainey's well in her final moments. And this made her realize that, hey, like these people, they're just like everyone else. And this war is causing so much unnecessary death and destruction. And that's what made her kind of, you know, change her mind and write Aegon a letter and being like, you need to stop this war. Um, so, judging by what we know of Rainey's personality, she wasn't a warrior type person by heart, right? So maybe this is her dying wish for this war to end. Uh, and as to why Aegon flew to Dragonstone, I think uh, Nymor ordered that Rhaenys' body be shipped back to Dragonstone so that she can have a proper Targaryen funeral and be buried at home. Uh, so this is why like, Aegon needed to fly to Dragonstone right away to, uh, you know, bury um bury his wife and of course i think princess maria martel she was she was really stubborn so she didn't want to stop the war so she probably had the letter but she didn't want to give it to aegon because she wanted to you know this war to drag on for a longer so that she can grind him down but 
Uh, I think once she passed away, uh, Naimor, her son, when he took over, he's like, this war needs to end. And uh, conveniently, he has this letter that was written by Rhaenys that is the only thing that could convince Aegon to stop. So, of course, he decides to use it, right? Uh, so that's my theory anyways. None of this is canon, but that's just my theory. Uh, I really do think that my theory is right, though, because I don't think anything else uh, would have had the ability to move Aegon in the way that it was described uh, in the book. Um, but yeah, anyways, that's it for this week's episode. Uh, next week, we'll wrap up with the rest of Aegon's life as the king of Westeros and go through some of the reforms and the policies that he made and how he set up the success or perhaps failure of future kings to come. So anyways, thank you all for listening, and I'll see you all next week. Thank you.